We started a new series last week called The Comeback, and oh, it's going to be a great day today. We already had a great service, uh, so whenever we have a good first one, I feel like it just makes the second one even better. Um, so as we're starting uh, this story today, I just want you to know that uh, Genesis Metro, we're trying to create a, a culture, perpetually create a culture where comeback stories are possible. And I think that's that's the way that church should be, right? And uh, it makes it really easy whenever we define a win. And, and whenever you're joining an organization, for all of you that are new to Genesis Metro, it's really important to know like what they're about, right? And you want to know that you're aligned with your values and what the vision is. And at Genesis Metro, we simply uh, measure success at our church. So how we mark a, a win on the scoreboard is that when your life is changed in response to God's word. And so it's not self-help where you're just trying to do better, be better. It's transformation as a result of you applying God's word to your life, whether that be beginning a relationship with God and saying yes to him so that he can become your savior. And that's, that's certainly a life change. That's an eternal life change, but it's also in the everyday because we don't um, ride the escalator at a constant pace up to heaven, right? Once we get saved, it is a, a roller coaster, baby. And any given week, you are, you are in the valley of that roller coaster. And, and it's, it's exciting, but it is difficult. And today we're going to be talking specifically on how we can make a comeback because what we know from life, if you've lived any amount, is that failure is an absolute certainty. That we will all have low moments where we fall, where we falter, where we fail, where we lack enough faith. And so what do we do? How do we handle these seasons of failure? And um, today I think we're gonna share some, some part of Judas and how he handled failure, and then we're gonna contrast it with how Peter handled failure. And, and in so doing, I think we'll, we'll lay the groundwork for how to have a biblical comeback, how we can rise like a phoenix from the ashes, if you will. And in order to whet your appetite, I thought we would go over um, a greatest comeback in NFL history. Now, it, it won't be by a point margin, because I think in the playoffs, that was a 35 to 3 margin. Uh, my, my favorite team growing up was the Houston Oilers, um, and so they, they lost a game there to the Buffalo Bills. We won't talk about that. But um, what is widely regarded as the greatest comeback in NFL history was the game where the Patriots played the Atlanta Falcons and they got down 28 to three in a Super Bowl. And that's what made the magnitude so incredible is that they were down 28 to three with nine and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter. And if you like math and study probability, they were a 99, 99.7, okay? 99.7% chance to lose this game, all right? You got a point three, a point three, not a full one, a point three chance of winning. And there's something amazing about a comeback, right? You could be disinterested in both teams that are playing a game, but let one team get down and all of a sudden the other team starts fighting back and, and all of a sudden now your interest is peaked. And there's something about even I think in Americans, it's like I think it's somewhat even unique to our culture that we love a great comeback story. And so when the Patriots were one score down and they were on their final regulation drive, there was a play. And it was a seminal moment in the game, a game in which really 
hinged whether or not they were going to win. There was already a, a strip six by Dante Hightower, and there was several other incredible plays that got them back in the game. But it wouldn't, wouldn't have been a complete comeback if, if it was like they got really close and they lost. They'd have been inches away from an incredible comeback. But instead, there was this play. And we're going to watch this together, and I want you to remember with me this moment. 36. Shotgun snap to Brady. Stands in, throws down the middle for Edelman. Ball's tipped, and Julian diving for it. I got it. I caught it. I got it. Edelman has it. Did he make the catch? He, he did. You gotta be kidding me. Boy, hard to tell. I caught it. Crazy. I swear to God. No way. Look at that. Watch. No. No. And in fact, there was a bobble, but he was able to catch it before it hit the turf. I think he caught that. The ruling on the field is confirmed. The receiver's hand is under the ball. Man, I want you guys to think about that. Inches. Again, they, they say football is a game of inches. Three inches off the ground. And then he re-grips it one inch off the ground. And they go down, score, win the game in overtime. I want you to just think for me, with me just a moment that if you go back and watch this play, it is a crossing route, and the guy tips the ball. The linebacker tips the ball. The guy who had already, by the way, ran an interception back for a touchdown in the game, so one of their best players on the, on the field that day, tips the ball up in the ground. And if you watch the whole play, okay, it's like four individuals on this play touch the ball in one and a half seconds, and I think 10 body parts touch the ball. I mean, just imagine it was feet, it was helmet, it was a leg, there's a wrist. I mean, it was, it's crazy if you go back and just watch it. I was trying to count them all. And even when I slowed it down and paused it, it was like, how was that possible, right? You don't even have to be a Patriots fan, but you can appreciate that the concentration, the focus, dare I say maybe even a little luck was involved. I mean, he catches it. I don't even know why his hands came off of it. Like I've never caught a ball and then decided to take my hands off of it as it somehow magnificently, just majestically hovers off the ground. And then like I re-grip it and it's like, oh, he caught it. He caught it. And so anyway, I don't know if you can tell that I get excited about this, but I do, but I do love it. I told my children that day, I was like, you just witnessed the greatest game that you will ever see in your entire life. And I stand by that statement. Anyway, comeback stories, comeback stories. And so today as we get into this message, I hope that maybe there's just one person in here today that you're in that valley and you need to make a comeback. And you're betwixt the two choices of turning inward or to turning upward. And I hope that you'll see today that there's grave consequences on how you handle the seasons of doubt and despair when we've denied the Lord. In Luke 22, we're going to see two stories of two different men separated only by a few hours of time. And both are going to make great mistakes, great mistakes. But one is going to come back and one is going to end in ruin. And I hope today that you can maybe play both parts and learn the lesson of how we come back from a fall. It says, while he was still speaking, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, so he's moments away from his arrest, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, right before he kissed him, will you betray 
the Son of God, with a kiss? Will you betray? Now, just imagine what's going through Judas's mind at this moment. Like, in Judas's mind, he's sly, just like some of you. You think you're sly, right? You think you're getting away. Some of you have children, right? They think they're sly. They think they are. They think so. And here is Judas. And can you imagine Jesus, like, just, just stone, like, looking at him? Like, are you going to betray me with a kiss? Have you ever noticed that we just kind of look at Judas through a lens? Like, you even say Judas. Like, you say it, like, kind of like, Judas. Judas. But you don't say Peter like that, do you? No. Peter's made lots of mistakes, but he gets a pass. We think of Peter, he's like, he's the good guy. He walked on water. He did all these great things. There's a difference, a contrast because of how these stories ultimately end. I want you to think that, that Judas, the Bible says after he betrayed Jesus, he actually went to undo the thing that he had did. It says that he went and he took the money, the 30 pieces of silver, and he went back to the high priest and he was like, hey, I want to give the money back. And he's filled with regret. He's filled with remorse. And they won't even take it back. They're like, hey, what's done is done. And I, it, this is a hard truth. This is a hard truth. I bet everyone in here has some things that if you could undo it, you would, right? I mean, you've made some decisions and they have consequences and you're, you're like, man, I wish I could undo it. And the sad truth is, the hard truth is, what's done, say it with me, is done. See, you already know. And it hurts when we've made these terrible mistakes. It hurts. And when we think about it, I, I would even say it like this, that whenever you have regrets without repentance, it's always going to lead to ruin. It says that Judas went from this moment where he tried to give back the money. It says that he went out and he, and he actually hanged himself. Now think about that. Whenever he was coming up to Jesus, it's pictured in your mind. He's like, how close, right? Right there, inches away. And Jesus says, are you going to betray me with a kiss? He was inches away from salvation, inches away from redemption, inches away from a completely different story. What if Judas had made a different decision? Wouldn't that have been an even more incredible story that he sold the Savior, but then he reneged and he, and he went back on it and he said, no, I won't, I won't do it, I won't do it, I won't betray you, Jesus. What if he stood and he fought the soldiers that were with him that night? I mean, what if there, there's so many what ifs that could have been, but he didn't. And it says that that regret was so great and the darkness was so bad, so overwhelming that he went out and he thought his only solution was to end his life. Hmm. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. It has kind of a twofold kind of strand, right? You can have interpersonal between you and someone else, unforgiveness. And then you can have internal unforgiveness where you won't even let God forgive you. Think about that, how ugly unforgiveness is. Think about that with me for just a moment. That, have you ever seen someone that's like wanting to apologize to someone and they say they're sorry and then that person 
won't receive it. Has anybody ever seen this? Like, like they're like, hey, I'm sorry, I should have done it. And they're like, mm-mm, no, mm-mm. And they like hold on to the grievance. They hold on to the hate. It's like bitterness is their fuel for life. Has anybody ever, ever known anyone like this? Think about that for a moment. Who are you hurting when you hold on to the hate, right? You aren't hurting them because before God, once they ask for forgiveness, they are released from that debt. But then you dare hold on to it that you would not extend the... If, wait, wait a minute. If God forgave you, who are you to hold on to hate, to hold on to unforgiveness in your heart towards a person? As a matter of fact, when you really think about it, God says that he begins to hold you accountable for the debt whenever you won't forgive others. Gosh, how much are we hurting in this room this morning because we are holding on to unforgiveness? And then the internal part of it. Have you ever got to a place where you think there is no hope? I don't know if you've ever been in a financial hole before where you're just like, I just don't know how we're going to get out of this. Sometimes you can get into an emotional black hole where nothing that that person can say can seem to fix it and you are spiraling down. And even when God says that I could forgive you, God says I could restore you, God says that I could give you redemption, you are determined to punish yourself for the worst moments of your life. That even when that little fleeting happiness rises up, or maybe you're in a worship service like this, and like you dare let yourself go to this place where you could be forgiven, where you could cast off the weight of the sin that bogs us all down. There's something in you that is determined to not forgive yourself. That you won't even agree with God when he says, if you ask, I will forgive. And I don't even just forgive, I forget. As far as the east is from the west, he says, I forgive. I throw it into the sea of forgetfulness and I choose to remember it no more. But yet you keep on punishing yourself. Do you think that that inward turn could be a tortured soul, a tortured mind? Do you, think, do you think there's people sitting in this room that keep replaying their worst moments and then they are, it's like infection, it's like a cancer inside their mind that they interpret every interaction by these bad moments in their life and it skews their entire vision for what's possible in life. This morning, if you've come to a conclusion that there is no hope, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I couldn't tell you that you are, you are so wrong, that you are so wrong, that if you were to allow God's truth to invade this place of unforgiveness, that I could introduce you to a God that could take a weight that is on your shoulders that is unbearable, that I would prevent every Judas if I could, because what he did was terrible. 
But how he responded to what he did was even worse. Today I'm here to tell you, you can't undo it. But you can handle the repercussions with a different response. Let's go into Peter's version. Just hours later. Just hours later. Okay? We're not talking about days. We're not talking about weeks. Just hours later. Peter is in the process of denying Christ. He's gone through two interactions already where someone said, are you a follower of Jesus? He's like, nope, I don't even know who he is. And we're getting to the third interaction. It says, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, (laughs) immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And you say, well, what is that important? Because Jesus told him exactly what was going to happen. Look at verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I don't know if you've ever thought you were getting away with something. Has anybody ever thought you were getting, like, have your kids ever thought they were getting away and all of a sudden, like, it could be at a football game, there could be a crowd of people around and they're over there acting like a jack wagon and, like, you feel the look. Does anybody ever know what I'm talking about? I do this even in my married life. I can feel the look of my wife. Sometimes while I'm on the stage, I can feel the look. She's somewhere in the room and I know that she's looking, right? And it's that look like, mm, mm, stop it. And she likes to do the whisper talk. I don't know if anybody, any other women do that. That's what she does to me. I'm like, people can see you doing that. It's embarrassing. As soon as Peter denied the Lord, a rooster, <laughs> a rooster, and like, and all of a sudden the Lord, who is already in the process of being betrayed by Judas. He's already been beaten up. He's already been falsely accused. He's already been handled like rabble, even though he's innocent on all charges. In the midst of his pain and suffering, he had time to look. Oh man, you talk about a cinematic moment, right? He denies and all of a sudden, Jesus turns around. He's looking at him. There's a God in the Greek God mythology called Epimetheus. And Epimetheus had a brother named Prometheus. Prometheus had the ability of foresight. Epimetheus had the gift gift or curse of aftersight. And I bet there's a lot of Epimetheuses in here. Have you ever done something and right after you did it, you realized I shouldn't have done that. Anybody in here know what I'm talking about? Like, As soon as he did it, it says he remembered (laughs) what the Lord had said. He honestly is remembering just a little too late, right? And some of us, that's our curse. That's our curse is that we, we instantly know on the wrong side that we shouldn't have done this. And most of you will readily relate to this. Has your body ever told you do not have another drink? And like you had one too many. And as soon as you did, it was like the Lord said to you, Well, that was one too many. And now you start talking to the Lord about this, right? You're like, Lord, if you will just get me out of this moment, I will never drink again. I guarantee you. Now, some of you are saying we're in church, but I know the people that are sitting here. Trust me. Trust me. You remembered right after. (laughs) 
You did it. You shouldn't have done that. Some of you have been in a fight and you like went just a little too far with your spouse and you said something. And as soon, literally, it was like in the air. And you're like, you tried. You know, and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> now you're going to own it though because you're stubborn. Anyway, here was Peter in the midst of his worst moment. He's denied Christ. Just as bad as Peter, or just as bad as Judas. And now we're going to see how he interacts with that failure, right? It's a terrible moment. Went out and wept bitterly. And I, I'm sure that some of us in here have done some things that we regret. And we wish I wouldn't have done that. And then the Lord is crucified. So in Peter's mind, now it, it can't be made right. Now I can go and have a conversation with him. That grave was a little deeper in relation to Peter. Because I don't know if you've ever had a tragic moment where your last words with someone was something that you'd wish you could take back. But man, that's a, that's a dark place. Jesus rises from the grave and we know Peter runs to the grave and it's empty and some angels talk to him and the Marys tell him like he's going to come, you're going to see him. And Jesus appears a couple of times and yet even though Peter knows he's alive, he's not sure where he stands. <laughs> and I don't know if you walk in here with any sin that's on your shoulders and because of the sin that's on your shoulders, you kind of believe, you kind of start saying to yourself, you become a a second-class citizen in the church where I can go, but, you know, I really can't get involved because if they knew the things that I've done, then they wouldn't allow me <laughs> to do. No, that's the enemy's voice. That's not God's voice. Peter said in John 21, post-resurrection, post a couple of interactions, he said, I'm going out to fish. Now, what was Peter before he met Jesus. Anybody know in here? Just say it out loud. He's a fisherman. So he was going back to what he knew, right? This should sound like a familiar story to some of you in the room. He said, I'm going out to fish. That's what he told the other disciples. And if you read the full chapter, all the other 11 were with him and some of them were not fishermen, but they all decided to go, right? It's like the leader has the loudest voice. Be careful what you're doing. They said, we'll go out with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. In verse five, he called out to them. He said, friends, haven't you any fish? <laughs> now, are you telling me that God doesn't have a sense of humor? Are you? That's impossible. That's impossible. Like he's God. He knows what's going on. He knows they don't have any fish. And there he is on the shoreline. And we're going to find out later that he's actually grilling a fish during this whole entire interaction. Let that just sink in and blow your mind. Okay. Haven't you, haven't you any fish out there, boys? How's it, how's it going out there? It's going all right. And what is he really asking? He's really asking is what you are doing working? Is it working? Is it working? Because it's either working or it's not working, right? And, and I thought we would just 
pause the story for just for a moment and ask ourselves the same question. Is, is what you're doing working? Because Peter was competent and he had experience in fishing, and yet it wasn't working. And some of you are competent and you have experience, yet it's not working. Some of you, let's be honest, you are stubborn right now in this season and you're unteachable and that is not working. Some of you are embracing anger on a regular basis and that anger is like a fire that everyone around you is punished by your anger, and let's be honest, it isn't working. Some of you are uncommunicative inside of your relationship, and you know that there are problems, but you're just going to ride the Titanic down to the bottom, and it isn't working. Some of you are rejecting your spouse over something that they have done or something you frustrated you with, and you are not willing to let forgiveness into the equation, and you are punishing them by withholding affection, withholding intimacy. And let me tell you, it isn't working. And why do we continue down this road, and all we have left is our pride and our arrogance, and it isn't working? Can you tell me why we would continue to do wrong things over and over again and expect to get a different result? You see, Peter went back to what he knew. And so oftentimes when we are faced with struggle and stress, we go back to the things that we already know. And the problem is that the thing that he already knew was now not producing. Let's go on. It says, he asked them, do you have any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did this, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, several things here, but I want you to see that they were in a position of limitation. All right. The, the God was limiting what their uh, effort was trying to accomplish. And I want you to see that that limitation was actually the prelude to the invitation, that they were having this empty net night, and sometimes we are complaining to God and we are saying, God, I want you to fill my net. Uh, God, I want you to fill my bank account. <laughs> God, I want you to give me the promotion. And it doesn't matter what we are praying, it's not working, and we can't figure out why it's not working. And oftentimes God is laying the groundwork because if you were on the mountaintop and your belly was full, then you'd be less apt to be ready to listen, right? So whenever we go through an empty net night, God is causing us to become hungry to hear what he has to say. And you wouldn't have even listened if you were sitting there and, and he allowed you to have comfort inside of your sin, right? If he allowed you to have comfort inside of the, the path to destruction, no, he makes it uncomfortable. And now the thing that you used to use is no longer working. And now you're open to suggestion, right? God oftentimes has to pry our cold, dead fingers off of things like in order for us to sit here and listen. And what's amazing about God is that he can take a message and you weren't even looking for it, right? And here it comes. You walk into a church service that you don't even want to be in and all of a sudden his word is coming for you. So I want you to know that you can learn to embrace and start to ask the question, what is God doing? If what I'm doing isn't working, 
Am I open to change? Verse 7, it says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is how John refers to himself. I find that kind of funny. And he's like, then Jesus' favorite um, said to Peter, as a result of this incredible catch, because, you know, remember the past, this kind of thing had happened before, right? And he said, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Repentance runs to Jesus. If you want to know the difference between remorse that Judas had and then the remorse and regret that Peter had is that how they handled it was different. Remember, Judas turned inward. Now, Peter is going to turn outward or upward, however you want to say it, towards Jesus, and he's going to jump in the boat. I mean, jump out of the boat. And he's, he's swimming as fast as he can, running up this beach, because in his mind, I have to get to Jesus. I have to get to Jesus. And so many of us, when we get stuck in the mistakes that we've made, we are reluctant to want to run to Jesus. And so we come into a church service and we try to think about other things. We try to look around. We try, and it's like you're, you're trying to like a block, like a fighter. Like I'm throwing punches and you're like, you know, bobbing, weaving. Because like, if you just sat there and listened to God's word for just a half an hour, it would break your heart and it would put you on the road to recovery. And so all I'm trying to say to you today is that God is giving you the opportunity. Judas was inches away and his story ended in tragedy. And now Peter is inches away. He's a hundred yards when he starts, but he's inches when he runs to Jesus. He's so close to a comeback story and God loves a comeback story. I want you to know it's like all throughout the Bible. Jacob betrayed his brother and he came back and they were reunited. Whenever we think about David, he committed adultery and then he committed murder on top of that and yet he came to his senses and wrote Psalm 51 where he said, create in me a clean heart, O God. And he came back and he was a great king. Whenever we think of the prodigal son, he went out and wasted everything the father had provided to him. And he said to himself, oh, I can never come back. And yet the father welcomes him with open arms. This morning, I don't care what you've done. You choose how the story ends. That God's grace is greater than all your sin. That there is a choice to make between you beating yourself up for the rest of your life are learning to walk in the forgiveness of the Lord, to walk in joy, peace, and purpose. Man, I would tell you, you need to get to Jesus as fast as you can. And this morning, whenever we go through the reflection time in just a little bit, you'll have that opportunity. It says that when they landed, the boat got to the shoreline. Peter is already up there. It says when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with a fish on it, all right? This is not one of their fish. This is Jesus' fish. You say, how do you get the fish? I don't know. I think he spoke all creation into existence, and he's probably just like, fish, all right? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't say. But it says that there was a fish on it and some bread. And I want to say to you, he already has what you're looking for. Now, this is... Incredible. 
and I'm going to play this out to the hilt, and I hope that you'll remember this for the rest of your life, all right? Let's just imagine there's a little grill, all right? And in our modern day, it has to be a cast iron skillet, you know? And Jesus is up there, and he's just fishing away, right? He's just, or cooking, cooking away. Anyway, he's cooking, and he's just like, yeah, it's like, he's like, hey, boys. And he's like, uh, you got any fish out there? <laughs> you know? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, no, we haven't caught anything. He's like, oh, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. And like, oh, my gosh, incredible. And like, John, it's the Lord. Peter, and he's just up there grilling the whole time, right? And he's like, come on in, guys. Let's have some breakfast. Let's have some breakfast. He said, Peter, uh, matter of fact, why don't you go grab your fish? Now, this irony is so thick. He's cooking the thing that they were trying to get, right? And they couldn't get it until he allowed them to get it. But did they really need it? Because the whole time he was sitting on the shoreline with the thing that they were trying to get in the first place, maybe like I would tell you, the thing that you're trying to get is not the thing that you need, that he already has the thing that you need. If you would just get to Jesus faster, he could get the thing you need to you quicker. Oh, oh I'm just trying to say this. And so he's like, come on in, boys. Let's, uh, let's have some breakfast, you know. There's so much in the unsaid, Right? Can you imagine Peter sitting there knowing that he told the guys, let's go fishing, and has led all the apostles to try to go back to what they once were? So much is unsaid. It's almost like, remember the day that I came up and I borrowed your boat the first time? Hmm. Remember when I called you and I said, you'll become a fisher of men and you dropped your nets? Hmm. Like, we've been here before, right? Like, you know, when I said, cast your nets out in the deep and you drew so many fish, it was too much for your boat and you had to call your brother's boat over. Remember, you remember that, Peter? Oh, okay. He's not saying it, but it's being said. You hear what I'm, you know, hmm. Sometimes God, he doesn't even have to say it. Like so many times people come up to me and say, man, when you preached on that, I didn't even say it. The Lord said it. But it didn't have to be said by me. The Spirit said it to you. And the people say like, oh, yeah, when you, I didn't say that. I didn't even say that. That's what the Lord said to you. He's up there just cooking away a little lines. Mm. <laughs> ah, man, I don't know what. I don't know what it is you're chasing this morning. But if it's without the Lord, it's not going to work. It never has worked. It never will work. You'll spend your whole entire life chasing after stuff that God already has. Peter pulls up the net and it says there actually was a count. It's 153. Great catch. Great catch. And he said to Peter, he said, do you, do you love me more than these? Now I wish I could tell you that a comeback story is easy. But if you want to have a comeback moment, you're going to have to have a hard conversation, right? It's not like it's forgiveness without discussion. It's not like it's forgiveness without a decision on your part. It's not like there's forgiveness without confession, right? At some juncture, the ball is in your court. Some of you are inches away, inches away from an incredible story this morning, inches away 
from a marriage that recovers from what seemed to be a mortal wound, inches away from getting your parenting on track to keep your kids out of a broken heart someday, inches away from a teenager deciding for the rest of their life they're going to choose people who have already chosen Christ and thus break the cycle of broken homes, and they're inches away. And now Peter is presented with his moment. Do you love me more than these? He said, Lord, you know all things. I love you. He asked him three times, and we don't have time for all of that this morning. But just understand this. God is putting the question as simply as he can to you this morning. Do you love me more than these? I don't know what your these is, but everyone in here has something. The thing that you believe your life is about, the idols that we lift up. And until you're willing to let go and love God more than those, I'm telling you, you'll spend your life in perpetual frustration that the darkness will always win. Man, I hope today that those of you that are inches away, that you would focus, that this is your moment. This is your opportunity. That's why I love the song that we sang today. The enemy thought he had me, but Jesus said, you are mine. Peter went on to save thousands of souls through the preaching of the gospel. Judas went on to die alone. It's not that they didn't fail and both epically fail. It's that one chose repentance and the other one stayed in regret. I hope today just one person might throw off the shackles of regret and I would run to Lord, run to the Lord as fast as you can. Let's pray. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would help us, God. Help us to receive the forgiveness that's in Jesus. Help us to give the forgiveness that we've received that God, we would listen to you and that we would worship you, God, today out of a heart that is grateful that we haven't been judged and confined by our worst moments, but that we have a chance to write a new chapter, a different story, and that the story can end so much differently as a result of how we handle the failure. I know by preaching a message like this that I'm actually talking to someone specific in the room. That weight is on your shoulders and it's unbearable. If for no one else, then you. Can I just say what God is offering is free. It's free. It's not based upon you. It's not based upon your goodness. It's not based upon what you have to offer. You may have millions. I promise you, you have nothing to offer the Lord that he doesn't already have. You say, well, if I'm a transactional person, why would he want to do that for me if I've done nothing for him because he's God? But you've got to make up your mind. Do you love me more than these? In worship, you tell him. God, I love you more than those. I promise you, you worship like that, you'll be free when you leave. Would you stand and worship with us?